0: I just figure if I don't have anything good to say, you can just look at my jacket. (laughs) Remember with Paul, they criticized him and said, he doesn't look good and he can't speak. Right. And so, Pat, thanks for that introduction. By the way, many of you have come to me and said that you're praying for me. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think about how you ministered to my mom when she was dying of cancer, uh, how you love my younger brother. And so I'm in debt to Omaha Bible Church. Thank you. There was a man named Robert Thornton, and he was a professor at Levi University, and he wanted to help people not get sued. And so he came up with a litigation-proof lexicon of intentionally ambiguous recommendations, (laughs) L-I-A-R. If someone was inept, you would write, I enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. If somebody was unproductive, I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. You're a little slow on the uptake, I know. It's Omaha. Hey, I was born here, I can say it. If somebody's not worth consideration, you would say, I urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment. He's a difficult man to replace. He'll sue you if you try to fire him. He takes a lot of enjoyment out of work and ruins it for everyone else. That's my favorite and last one. If I were you, I'd give him sweeping responsibilities. Well, today we're gonna look at another lie. It's not funny, and I wish it wasn't true but it's the lie of final justification, the lie of a justification that's different than the initial justification. And so we're going to look at that today. The title is entitled The Myth of Final Justification, but I'm going to amend it to a theological lie of future justification. It happens all the time. Sola fide is attacked. Faith alone is attacked. And the good news, when there's something wrong happening in the church, The truth rallies around it, and we proclaim again the truth that's found in Christ Jesus alone. So today, uh, I guess five outline points have been taken. Seven have been taken. And so every good pastor that has more than five, six, seven, eight, or nine, I'm just going to give you several questions because I don't know how many I'll get to. Several questions that I'm going to ask you so that you can understand final justification, reject it, and then rejoice in the justification that is found in Christ Jesus. Do you know, dear Christian, that when you die, you will not become more righteous in heaven? Did you know that? You are as righteous as you'll ever be in God's eyes. Counted righteous as Christ Jesus, you can't get more righteous. Did you know like John Bunyan who was walking around one day and he was wondering about his own sin? thinking, you know what, will I make it into heaven? And we all have questions about our salvation and we have anxieties and what's going to happen. And it dawned on him, my righteousness is in heaven and it's been in heaven for 1,800 years. I want you to be assured of your salvation, dear Christian. I want you to be confident. I want you to be able to be on your deathbed and think, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Questions about Final justification. By the way, I'm going to go as fast as I can, and I want you to know that there are preachers that preach a long time. I read about a man in southern France, and he preached 50 sermons in a row on two words, Repent Ye. And some of those sermons lasted four and a half hours. So I have 40 minutes, we better go. Let's buckle up. Question number one What is future justification? This is not a Bible exposition. We'll get to the Bible here in just a second. But what is future justification? What is final justification? What final justification advocates teach is two justifications. The initial one, salvation by faith alone, justification by faith alone, forensically, courtroom language, gavel language, the judge says not guilty, and then The final day, the final judgment, there's another justification based on your works, based on how much the Holy Spirit has transformed your lives. So they have two justifications, initial and final. The first rests on the finished work of Christ, and the last one, the transformative one, rests on your works. In other words, justification doesn't solely rely on Christ's death and resurrection, but the Holy Spirit's transformation in Christ. Your life. The first justification doesn't guarantee the last justification they teach. They think the first one is provisional and we'll see if you make the last one if you have enough works. And you say, who could really say that? N.T. Wright. Justification at the last will be on the basis of performance. That's not talking about Jesus' performance, but your performance. And by the way, start thinking to yourself, if you're like me, I lie to myself and I become self-righteous and I think I actually do those works that God really wants me to do with a pure heart. But if you're honest with yourself, you're going to start thinking, what's going to go on on that day when I stand before God? Eternity's a long time. So they teach two justifications. That's why they call it the final justification. N.T. Wright said, present justification declares on the basis of faith what future justification will publicly affirm on the basis of the entire life. So how is your entire life gonna stack up on that final day? And you see where that goes in terms of messing with your assurance. They deny justification is solely grounded on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And they simply blend your holy living category of sanctification into justification. You would have to need, with this system, sufficient evidence of what the Holy Spirit is doing on your behalf. Initial justification, final justification to ensure your deliverance. And I just want you to know that's bad news. That's very bad news. One of my goals today is when you hear something that someone teaches, I want you to run it through the rubric of, is that good news or bad news? When they start talking about your life has to be transformed enough in order to get to heaven, I want you to start thinking, that's not good news. Because that's not talking about Jesus. Good news is Jesus incarnate, is the, is the second person of the Trinity. That's not good news, that's bad news. Question one: what is final justification? It's the second justification based on your transformed life, following the initial justification based on Christ's life. Question number two follows: what is justification? What is the true? What is the real justification? Because that would be good to know. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as we talk about God's free justification. As the confession says, not by infusing righteousness into us, but by pardoning our sins, by accounting and accepting us as righteous, not by anything wrought in us, or done by us, but for Christ's sake alone. It is Jesus who fully discharged the debt of all of our sins. And by the way, he continues, God does, to forgive us all of our sins because we are justified and we can, as the confession says, never fall from that. So Romans 3, let's pick it up in verse 9, please. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so with our law gospel paradigms, I just said law, didn't I? I knew it. I got to New England and somebody got up and was reading the words in Revelation and they said, quoting Jesus, I am the Alpha and Omega. <laughs> and I did what you did, out loud laugh, but nobody else laughed. I can't just believe I said Lar. So, law from God here in this first use is like a mirror and you look at yourself and you think, I'm really sinful. I'm better than other people, but I'm sinful. And you get those 10X magnifying mirrors, and it's got the light around it, and you thought, I looked pretty good when I woke up, but when you look and the pockmarks and everything else, and so the law shows us we need a Savior. And by the way, when this law is preached in such a way, it stops our mouths as unbelievers. You're right. I'm sinful. I stand before you, God, and I need a Savior. For by works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now the light goes on, good news, but now everything turns here. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, that's us keeping the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, there's no distinction, for all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. And our, there's our word again, justified by his grace as a gift. And you see it down in verse 26 as well, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28, for we hold that by, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If you think of law, here's what you should think of. There's a positive side, precept, for keeping it. And there's a penalty if you disobey it. And so Jesus, of course, you ask the question, why did he not come down on Friday and then be killed and raised on Sunday? Well, Jesus is sent by the Father, born of a woman, born under what? Law. So let's think of like a mower. And you're, you're mowing here in Nebraska. I used to mow. I just drove past my old house that I grew up in, and I'd have to mow. And so you've got forward, reverse, and neutral. And so Adam's in the garden, and he's in neutral, and God says, I want you to obey me, forward. Well, instead of doing that, Adam jams it into reverse, doesn't even put the clutch in, and that's where he goes, disobeys God. So the negative side of disobedience, the penalty has been paid for, and Michael Beck was talking about that substitution even early on in Genesis, and now Adam's back to neutral. But that, last, that first Adam still has to obey positively to keep that precept of the law. So in Jesus, when we think about justification, we shouldn't just say, it's just as if I've never sinned. We should be thinking, it's just as if I've never sinned because those have been paid for. I never will sin. Uh, I never have to pay for my sins. But also that I've perfectly, entirely, exactly, perpetually kept the law. Right? You can remember that with P-E-E-P. Perfectly, entirely, exactly, perpetually. Peeps. When Easter comes up and you see those marshmallows at the door, I want you to redeem those. This is, this is Adam language, federal representation language. By the way, you can put peeps, the marshmallows, in the microwave, put two of them in there, and they have peep wars, I heard. They have pizza, pizza. And so you can do whatever you want. But God requires you to get to heaven perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. And that is the reward for keeping the law. But if we don't keep the law, there's a penalty. And so you see with Jesus, he dies for our sins. That's the negative side of the law. And he obeys for us. So justification is simply a counting language that says, in God's eyes, because of Christ's perfect work, because of Christ's penalty paid for you, not for him, he sees you as justified. And it's a language of declaration. It's not talking about inside infusing righteousness. The declaration in God's courtroom, you have perfectly kept the law. That's how I see you. You have had all your sins paid for. And that's what justification language is. And I want you to know, dear Christian, when you are justified, you receive all of Christ's righteousness and you can't be justified anymore. You can't be justified any less. You know, I know this is hard to believe, but do you know I am just as justified as Michael Beck? (laughs) And so are you because you get all of Christ's righteousness. And that can never be revoked. It can never be taken away because it's been done by someone else. And just like when people say, well, you can lose your salvation. Well, you never earned it. And you can't lose your justification. We've now gone from the language of, well, are you sure you can lose your salvation? Or, you know, maybe you can. Now you can lose your justification. I mean, Jesus' death is so great. Let's just ponder for a moment. I know we don't like to go back in the trash bin of our sins. I've committed a lot of bad sins, even here in Douglas County. Think about the worst sin you ever committed. If Jesus were to walk in when you were committing that sin, what would his posture be? He's certainly holy. He certainly doesn't like sin. It's abhorrent. But the Lord Jesus, if you can just follow with the analogy a little bit, would say something like, that is grievous sin. You need to repent, but I want you to know that I love you, and I'm going to pay for that sin and every other sin that you've committed. I love you. And since God is immutable, that love stays. Justification by faith alone has benefits, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. This definitive righteousness that's given, securing God's verdict, has benefits. Look at the benefits we get. Therefore, Romans 5, 1, since we've been justified by faith, we hope we'll have peace with God in the future through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, sorry, I misunderstood that. Let's try again. Therefore, since we've received only the initial stage of justification, excuse me, therefore, we shall have peace with God after we've been sufficiently sanctified. Rats. Last try. We'll have peace with God that has been inaugurated, but we hope will be consummated later. All right, the real one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, present tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus... And what's more, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, that's good news. When you hear things like that, you should say to yourself, is that good news? Yes, because it's reminding me about the Savior that the Father has sent. Louis Burkhoff, justification takes place once for all. It's not repeated. It's not a process. It's complete once and for all time. There's no more or less justification. You are either justified or not justified in distinction from sanctification, which is a continuous process and is never completed in this life. Spurgeon, the moment you believe in Christ, you receive pardon. Your sins are no longer yours. They're cast in the depths of the sea. They were laid upon the shoulders of Christ and are gone. The man, you, dear Christian, or woman, stands guiltless in the sight of God. What you say? Do you mean that literally? Yes, I do, Spurgeon said, and that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Remember Micah? Hurling sins into the depths of the sea. Did you know God is an eager forgiver? He doesn't just drop them over, Jerry Bridges says. He just doesn't kind of fling them over. He hurls them over to show you with a language of analogy that he's eager to, to, re, to, to forgive you. You, dear Christian, will stand before God on Christ's righteousness, or Christ plus yours are your own, and only one of those is good news. Romans chapter 8, the shockiness verse maybe in all the Bible. It's unguarded. It maybe shouldn't be here. It might lead you to to licentiousness. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You just need to let that settle over you. I've been on what I thought was my deathbed, and that's the verse that kept... The refrain in my mind of joy going. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Accusations, yes. Sins that I've committed, yes. But no condemnation because the opposite word of justification, the antonym, is what? Condemnation. There is no condemnation. Could there be greater assurance? He just got done saying in Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do. And I do what I'm not supposed to do. Wretched man that I am. And here this mic drop, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. The unchanging, unmerited love of God in Christ Jesus. Christian, past sins, paid for, no condemnation. Present sins, paid for, no condemnation. Future sins, yes, future sins, paid for, no condemnation. You can't be unreconciled. You can't be unredeemed. You can't be unforgiven. You can't be unjustified because the end time verdict that you will hear on judgment day is given to you now in the present, no condemnation. It's front loaded. What will happen on that day? Are you afraid for Jesus' return? We might talk about that a little at the very end. Are you frightened that Jesus is going to return? And then what? By the way, that should be the most comforting thing at all for the Christian. We ought not to be afraid of that. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. No condemnation now I dread, Wesley wrote. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Afraid I approach the eternal throne. Oh, sorry. I keep misreading up here. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Because of what Christ did. I think that's pretty good news. Question three. Who teaches future justification? Who teaches future justification? By the way, it's all a derivative of the Roman Catholic Church. They teach and still teach in the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, i.e. justification, but that those works are merely fruits and signs of justification, that's what we say, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema, a curse. You're going to go to hell if you believe what I just taught in Romans 3. If anyone, Catholic Church teaches, says that after the reception of grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted, that was, I just was teaching that, the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out, I was just teaching that, and that no debt of temporal punishment remains, let him be anathema. Rome teaches you're not justified until you're really justified on the inside, cooperating with Christ. So here's what we're going to do. Remember, one of my goals is I'm going to say something. You say, is that good news? Does that sound like Jesus and what He did? Or does that sound like bad news? So I'm gonna give you the quote, you're gonna determine good news or bad news, and then I'll tell you who said it. Because if I tell you who said it first, you might with celebrity gazing eyes think I love that celebrity and whatever they say must be right. Pat told me to name names, I'm under his (laughs) authority. (laughs) The exclusive ground of justification of the believer in the state of justification is the righteousness of Christ. Any guesses what the next word is? But his obedience, which is simply the perseverance of the saints in the way of truth and righteousness, is necessary to his continuing in a state of justification. That is bad news. That doesn't sound like good news. That sounds like Rome. And that is a man named Norman Shepherd and he got kicked out of Westminster Philly after 8 years of wrangling sincere obedience to god in christ is a condition of our continuance in a state of justification and of our not losing it good news or bad news by the way if you think that's true how you doing if you're honest with yourself this is bad news really bad news that doesn't sound like jesus that sounds like rome that sounds like richard baxter and it is. And his book, Reformed Baptist, uh, Pastor, is a horrible book that you ought not to read. The stunning answer on how you can be right with God is sola fide, faith alone. But be sure you hear this carefully and precisely. He says, write with God by faith alone, not attain heaven by faith alone. There are other conditions for attaining heaven, but none others for entering a right relationship to God. Good news or bad news? Initial justification by faith alone, final justification by doing things. Good news or bad news? That sounds like Rome. And sadly, that's John Piper. John Piper also writes, quote, These works of faith and the obedience of faith, these fruits of the spirits that come by faith, are necessary for our final salvation. No holiness, no heaven. So we should not speak of getting into heaven by faith alone in the same way we are justified by faith alone. That's bad news. We, the Reformed people, know how to talk about works. We're all for works. But they're fruits and evidence, not ground. They are fruits and evidence, not conditions. Let me ask you some questions. Who has lived a life in such a way that he or she has merited heaven? Not me, not you, not John Piper, but only Jesus alone. What does union with Christ mean? Does it mean we get judged for our performance at the end? No. What does it mean that Jesus is our federal head, the last Adam? One writer says Is being declared righteous in God's eyes inadequate to attain heaven? Do you need more righteousness than Christ to attain heaven? How transformed must your life be before you can stand before God? Only the celebrity who says that knows. Benjamin Keach, I throw this out for Steve Meister, Reformed Baptist. Once we are justified, we need not inquire how a man is justified after he's justified. Am I justified in saying that? Okay. <laughs> and you can just look, if you want to look at the Old Testament, you know, Israel, they're going through the Red Sea. Remember that kind of two stage way they got through the Red Sea? The initial stage and the final stage? You remember that, right? Exodus 92. Sproul asked of Norman Shepherd, and I could ask of John Piper. What's the matter with the traditional view that good works are necessary for sanctification and a necessary evidence of faith? What's wrong with that? That's just how we always talk. Machen writes a hundred years ago, if Christ provides only part of our salvation, leaving us to provide the rest, we're still hopeless under the load of sin. Christ will do everything or Nothing. The only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on His mercy and trust Him for all. Romans 8, verses 12 to 13, cap off this proclamation of life in Christ by reminding us that God's gift of eternal life does not cancel the complimentary truth that only by progressing in holiness that eternal life will be attained. Good news or bad news? That's bad news. That sounds like Rome. Rome. And Doug Moose's commentary in Romans, I use all the time. But you just better make sure you start reading and thinking what happens when we start wanting good works to be done, but we don't think sovereign grace and the love of Christ Jesus motivates it. Do you really think that the motivation that you have to obey is because God loved me and he gave his son for me? That's the only animating principle that will help you live out of gratitude. Gratitude. Those who are children are also heirs, but this inheritance is also conditioned upon obedience, willing to suffer. The emphasis upon condition does not detract at all from the main theme of chapter 8 of Romans, which is assurance belonging to all believers. That is so wrong. Of course it detracts from it. And that's not good news at all. That's bad news. And that's someone who I use all the time in his Romans commentary, but he's wrong here because he teaches this final justification, Tom Schreiner. And even a man that I respect so much, Greg Beale, Harrison Perkins was dealing with him a little bit, and he said, Beale himself says that in his estimation, there's no simple answer to whether someone can, quote, be assured that he has a true saving relationship with God, end quote. Because we don't know how much work we have to do. We don't want to give short shrift to works because we're not antinomians. So somehow we have to have enough works. And so if you have to have enough works for assurance, how many do you have to have? And for your math majors, it's not N, it's N plus one. Keep going. How much fruit do I have? How much obedience do I have? How much steadfastness do I have? Does this sound like good news? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil... And so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Good news. Very good news. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. When you hear things about final justification, I want you to say it's not good news. It sounds like Rome. And John Owen knew it. John Owen said when you have a double justification distinction, a first and the second, it is a Roman Catholic doctrine. Question four, who teaches a right view of justification? Well, we looked at Paul, who did. I could also talk about Paul in Romans 6 with union with Christ. And by the way, the resurrection of Christ, you resurrected with him, forces no final justification. But lots of people teach the right way. You tell me if this is good news or not. Our final glorification is absolutely guaranteed from the moment of our justification. Good news, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus are not only righteous in the sight of God, but are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Good news, Machen. Where's heart when I need him? When you are engaged in discussing the question of justification, be careful of allowing any mention to be made of love or works. Because once we get our love and works in there, it's not going to turn into good news. Heidelberg Catechism, only by true faith in Jesus, that is, although my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am prone still as a Christian to do all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, grants and imputes to me by grace the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I've never sinned and I've accomplished all the obedience Christ has fulfilled for me. Question five. Why do people teach future justification? Why why do people teach it? Why would Pat have me talk about it? Well, I think number one, they're probably unfamiliar with church history. That could be it. Number two, they deny law gospel. They blend the two together. Does Pat ever talk about that? Bad Bible interpretation, Romans 2.13. I hope we have time to get there. But here's the big one, in my opinion. They're afraid that you're going to go crazy. Lawless. If you know that God loves you with an everlasting love, hurled all your sins overboard, you can never be unjustified, you might just take advantage of that. And by the way, you just might. But that doesn't undo the doctrine. We can't be afraid of sovereign grace when that's what the Bible teaches sovereign grace. It's not uncommon for people to think, I'm a pastor. Pat's a pastor. There are many pastors here. You know, there's some people in church doing some things we don't want them to do. Like they're watching the Nebraska game instead of coming to the conference. <laughs> how can we get them to obey? Well, you crank up the law. And instead of the law to guide and to help and to comfort and to norm, the law is you better keep doing the law because you're going to get to that deathbed one day and the question's going to be how much? And by the way, when God saves us and writes the law on our hearts and we're new creatures, we're, we're not going to just be crazy antinomians. I mean, what motivates obedience? I, I see my son right over here. What would I say to him to motivate him to obey? Son, I, I love you. Son, I'm proud of you. The Lord gave you to me. And you don't even have to then hear me say, so I want you to clean up your room. It's the love of God that motivates. I know you love Psalm 23 for lots of reasons. Let me give you one that you probably never thought of. There's no law in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't lack anything. He's with me. He's with me. He's with me. If I got two dogs again, my dog died a few years ago. If I got dogs again, I get two dogs and I name them goodness and mercy because they follow me all around. No commands. And you know, when I read Psalm 23, when I'm sick, and I'm in the cancer hospital, I'm reading Psalm 23, what does it make me do? Oh, I can be lawless. No, I think, Lord, I'm so sorry for being anxious. I'm sorry for being afraid. I'm sorry for not doing these things. Because grace motivates. You better get that in your mind. I know you do, but I'm here to remind you. Grace of God motivates. If somebody could love me like that, I was engaged for 30 days before I married my wife 34 years ago. My son tried to top me. He just got married after only 45 days. I don't know why he got married only after 45 days, but looking back, I got married in 30 days because I thought if my wife finds out about me and all the things I do, and she's never going to say yes. So pick somebody that keeps their word and get married right away. The Lord knew every one of your sins that you'd ever commit. He said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's going to make me just wrongly do all these sins. I'm just going to tread on the grace of God. May it never be. Paul knows that in Romans chapter 6. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? Of course not. Question 6, what are the implications of believing future justification? I'll make this quick. The focus is on you that unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, morbid introspection. I'm not saying there's never a time to say with the Reformed syllogism, uh, the Bible says Christians do these things, I do these things, therefore I must be a Christian. But that's secondary, that's tertiary. You don't look to yourself first. Luther said, did he not, when I look to myself, I don't know how I can be saved. And when I look to the Lord, I don't know how I can be lost. You're going to either be depressed or self-righteous. When you look a final justification based on your own works you're going to do something else you're going to do many things here's one degrade God's justice that's what James Buchanan said that somehow God would accept your less than perfect works on judgment day you don't really think God's that just God accepts your less than perfect works by the way as a Christian we're not talking about judgment day at the moment but he accepts those works because he accepts you I like to watch Master Chef sometimes because I'd like to watch some show on TV, and they're all so awful, so I watch Master Chef, And can you imagine somebody baking Ramsay, Chef Ramsay, a birthday cake? And he spits it out, and he cuts it in half and puts it on the person's head, and you're an idiot sandwich and all this stuff. And they lose the competition. But what if it's his six-year-old daughter, and it's his birthday, and she has a little Easy-Bake oven, and she makes it for her dad, and she presents it to him. And what does he do? Because he accepts her, he accepts the cake. That's why God accepts your worship. Are my motives perfect today? I'm sure they're not. I don't want to look stupid up here. I want you to think I'm a great preacher. Those are already probably both sins. But does he accept things because he accepts me? The answer is yes. You can tell a lot about a worship service in a church when you watch the communion service and the Lord's Supper. Is there something to be said for I'd like to confess my sin? Yes, but what does the text say? Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. If you remember Jesus, he he, he welcomes you to the table. It's like he opens the door and says, please come and have a meal with me. It's an anticipatory meal. It's not this scolding. It's called a means of grace, not means of scolding. But that's another sermon, question seven. What are the implications of believing real justification? Answer, opposite of the other, your focus is on Christ. Hebrews 12, fixing your eyes, looking at the Lord Jesus. Because you know if you keep looking at yourself, I'm just not going to measure up. Sinclair Ferguson, if final justification is dependent on something we have to complete, it is not possible to enjoy assurance. And I want you, dear congregation, to have assurance. If I were to visit you on your deathbed, How would I encourage you if you're a Christian? I visit people on their deathbed, and I usually say, are you afraid to die, and they say no. But what if I said this to someone? I had to go see my friend a while ago. He was dying, he's with the Lord now. What if I said to this, how was your quiet time today? Did you read your Bible enough today? Are you evangelizing the nurses? I think there might be a place for that. When I was there thinking I was going to die, I tried to evangelize the nurses. The doctors, I'd say, is there any way I could pray for you? And they're like, you need the prayers, buddy, not me. (laughs) What do we say on people's deathbeds? How about something like this? Jesus read and studied the Old Testament enough Jesus preached the gospel enough. Jesus prayed enough. You know, dear person on the deathbed, Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How about that? Here's my next question. Why do we say to ourselves, we would surely talk about that on deathbeds, but when people are living, we've got to give them extra laws so that they obey. You're dying right now. You could be dead right now. And so what kind of encouragement do we try to give people? What are some, question number eight, what are some key passages to know so that you can defend yourself against this? Romans 2.13, James 2, Hebrews 12, and Revelation 20. You'll have to listen to the podcast in a couple weeks because I'm going to finish this sermon on my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But Romans 2.13 is the real issue. Let me read it to you. But the doers of the law are justified. They'll be justified. The doers of the law. Romans 2.13. How you doing, by the way? So they'll say, if you do enough, you'll be finally justified. Remember, Romans 1 and 2 is in the section where we're trying to condemn people and have them say, I can't have anything except my mouth stopped. It's not about sanctification. That's in chapter 6. That's in chapter 7 with Holy Living. Chapter 2 is, if you want to get to heaven based on your own righteousness, moralistic Jew, you perfectly keep the law. That's all it's talking about. And Calvin said, if you don't believe that, you should be laughed at by children. Oh, excuse me. I thought you were going to laugh. Final question, what could I read to help me with this? Fesco on justification, Turretin on justification, Buchanan on justification, Calvin on justification, and Horton for justification. Fesco, Turretin, Buchanan, Calvin, and Horton, those would help you. If you just wanted to pick one, why don't you pick Fesco? I saw it right over there. They just upped the price. (laughs) It's like in L.A. we had the earthquake. Water went, you know, 10 times as expensive. When you hear someone say something about the law for the Christian that has to be kept in order to be saved, I want you to say, that's not good news. That's not about the Lord Jesus. That sounds like Rome. And when you want to encourage other Christians, might I say that you should just talk about the Lord Jesus and how he paid it all and it is finished? and met, you say, even with me or your pastor or anyone else. Some men I quoted are certainly Christian men, and they make mistakes. So we as a congregation, as a group, should be Bereans to say we need to work through these things so we just don't fall prey that if a celebrity says something, we believe it. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy... Where's that from? Second Maccabees, of course. <laughs> it's Jude 24. No wonder. Judgment Day isn't, shouldn't be scary for the Christian. The return of Christ should not be terrifying for you as a believer. Belgic Confession talks about Judgment Day. Therefore, with good reason, the thought of judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people. But it is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect since their total redemption then will be accomplished. They will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. The faithful and the will be crowned with glory and honor and the Son of God will confess their names before God the Father and the holy angels and all tears will be wiped from their eyes and their cause as present condemned as heretical will be acknowledged to be the cause of the Son of God. So we look forward to that day with great longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't fall prey to the lie of final justification because it demeans Christ's work. Amen. God bless you.